Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people, and um, none more interesting than our guest this time around. Jeremy Carl has a incredible sort of professional biography that I'm actually going to let him get into, but suffice it to say that he uh, started out in the early days of tech in the Silicon Valley um, and then transitioned into uh, different kinds of policy, energy policy. He worked for the Hoover Institution, Hoover Institute um, in Stanford University and then uh, transferred over to Claremont Institute where he is today. Um, he also writes for um, Claremont Institute's various publications, including the American Mind um, and the, the CRB, and also uh, he writes pretty frequently at American Greatness. Isn't that right? Uh, absolutely. Um, so, Jeremy, welcome to High Noon, by the way, first off. Thanks so much. And, and we, of course, have the, the thing in common of both having suffered through Palo Alto at various uh, stages of our life. So uh, that's a good point of, uh, of, of entry. Yeah, I actually wanted to start off there. Um, you know, you really were in Palo Alto and in Silicon Valley in, in, in sort of ground zero of this explosion of the tech industry that has then brought the region since not only a ton of money, but a, a ton of power um, over the course of the American of American life or, or of people who use their products. Um, you know, what was that initial explosion like? Um, what were the hopes, I think, uh, that, that a lot of these tech people had um, about connecting the world or um, some of these initial uh, internet-enabled um, connections and products? And what, was the, what was the ethos like? What was it like, the scene, I guess, um, and in that real sort of ground-level birth of what is now a very, very powerful industry? Sure, and I and I wrote about this um, at, at greater length in an article called Web 1.0 that sort of described my experiences for, for uh, Return Magazine, uh, and you can check that out online. But but the kind of executive summary is it actually was really exciting and, and probably uh, you know the the formative experience of my life. I mean, it really was. Um, I got involved in the web. Uh, I was still an undergraduate at Yale. It was 1993. Uh, when I got on the web, there were uh, probably less than 100 websites in existence in the world, as opposed to the several billion we have today. So I started in the earliest days. Uh, I took jobs at some of the earliest internet firms, uh, some of which I did while I was still even a student, I hadn't graduated yet. Um, and there was an incredible sense of idealism and hope and an immediate sense among those of us who did kind of get it that these technologies were going to be transformative. Um, however, I have to say that ultimately I was a little naive about uh, on whose behalf uh, there would be doing the transforming. I mean, having said that, uh, I've met, as, as you have, through, t through Twitter and all these other things that were not even a twinkle in people's eyes uh, in 1993, 94, 95. Um, I've met a number of amazing people. There's so many things that we do in our lives, including this very conversation, that are enabled by the internet. But I think there was very much a feeling that there was this sort of electronic frontier foundation and, oh, information wants to be free. And it's, it was kind of this libertarian paradise. And of course, that's not how it turned out. I, I saw something on Twitter just yesterday that sort of Gen Xers are the last people alive who remember what the really free internet was like. And we really did have it for a few shining years before the, uh, the kind of mandarins figured out that this was, uh, was not good for business and increasingly commoditized it and, and then took control. Yeah, I, I remember actually um, 
you know, talking with my, my father, who's a software, um, well, initially software, um, worked in software, but actually Ben worked in sort of algorithmic programming between the chip. And I, I don't quite understand, frankly, what he did. Um, it, it very, there's something very smart people do. Um, but he, his initial impulse with what you maybe to use your terminology might have been 2.0, the internet 2.0, when I was kind of coming of age in, in Palo Alto, it was all of the, the, the beginning really of social um, sort of the so- social, I, w- I wouldn't even quite call it social media. A lot of it was message boards or, um, and then it became public facing with MySpace and so on. But uh, his initial impulse was, who is paying for this? Like, where is the, uh, where is the profit margin? And I was like, oh no, dad, you know, you're so out of touch. This is all free. Everything is free yeah. on the internet. Um, and he was like, mm, I don't know if, I don't know if that's, that's actually the way that's going to work. You know, he's like, maybe you're the product if, if it's free. Um, <laughs> exactly. I mean, if it's free, you're the product. That's one of the most important lessons I, I teach my kids about things. And I think it certainly applies uh, with respect to a lot of these uh, services we see on the internet. Yeah, I mean, so did you, you you kind of lived through the disappointment, I think, um, a lot of the disappointment, I mean, uh, with these promises of the, the free internet, I think one of those underlying promises was um, the concept that if, if people, we could connect people all over the world, that we could kind of homogenize and, and make more peaceful relations between human beings of, of different cultures. I mean, how much of that do you think has, has come true, particularly with homogenization? Um, and then how much of it you know, I, I guess do you, I'll just lay out my theory, and then you can tell me if I'm, I'm right or wrong. I think a lot of the, the sort of censorious impulses in a lot of the folks in Silicon Valley is essentially disappointment that human nature has risen its ugly head once again. And it turns out if you connect people in Timbuktu with like people in Florida, they actually don't like each other more. They like each other less. And, they, and in fact, even two neighbors who are now privy to each other's very internal thoughts on a, on a 24-7 basis suddenly start hating each other rather, rather than right. engendering an, a new era of the brotherhood of man. But I mean, where did some of those promises go and how did people react to the disappointment that connecting the world did not result in a, a, a increase in the production of daisy chains? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think, I think there's a lot to that and that, you know, now I live in Montana and um, I wouldn't have to see like the crazy, you know, sort of transgender deviance being taught to second graders. Right. Um, except that it's on the internet. Right. So I could get really angry about it. Right. I mean, of course in Montana, we don't, we don't do that, but uh, in a lot of places they do. And so, you know, what might have been out of sight, out of mind um, is, is now not. Uh, and I'd say furthermore, sometimes you find that you actually really do like the person in Timbuktu, but then as you get more information discovery, you really don't like your neighbor that much. So, I mean, that, that I think is sort of the disappointment, um, the lost hopes that uh, maybe were inherent to the technology. I also just had the experience in that, I mean, Silicon Valley was so much more of a marginal place in the early nineties when I got involved. I mean, obviously it was a big industry, even at the time uh, it had, um, you know, it, it was a substantial economy, but nobody thought it was the center of the known universe in any way. And I think just even in the few years that I was really in the business, kind of watching the suits for lack of a better term, sort of descend upon what was kind of this idealized utopia and just kind of be all about, uh, you know, profit margins and, and commoditizing, um, you know, it did kill some of that, um, uh, you know, early excitement pretty early on, I'd say. So you're saying Silicon Valley is basically like Burning Man. Um, 
But it, 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 it's funny. <laughs> yeah. I almost went to like Burning Man three or four um, because it was still sort of this edgy thing that nobody knew about. I was like, oh, that kind of sounds interesting. And I was young and single. And I mean, this wasn't even like a tech person thing. It was like a weird San Francisco Bay Area thing. Yeah. Um, but then, it, you know, I didn't. And then by the time I really would have seriously considered it again, it was just kind of the epitome of awfulness and everything that I hate. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I saw the dust storm that enveloped everybody at the last uh, Burning Man, I was sort of smiling uh, that uh, God's wrath was being visited upon folks. So. What, um, and this isn't just the internet, it, it is larger connectivity in the world, the fact that, you know, you can fly almost anywhere in the world, 24 to 48 hours max, you can get from any point in the globe to almost any other point. Um, you know, what is the fate of the nation state? Uh, we, we throw around the word globalist a lot, and it does represent something. Uh, but it occurs to me now talking about the internet and the, the connection between you said, sometimes they find out they like the, the person in Timbuktu better than their neighbors. I mean, it seems to me that that's happened on a, a much larger scale with our elites. They've found out that they actually have a lot more in common with the elites in other nations than they do with their national countrymen. I mean, how do we, how do we reestablish or, or save the, the idea of the nation state at all in um, a globalized world where those elites are going to know that they, they have a lot of interests in common. They're going to know each other in a way that, they, that just wasn't even possible uh, before a lot of this technological uh, advancement. Well, I, I think it's a really it's a good question, and it's a it's a sort of a tricky question, and it's interesting because I, you touch on globalists, and I think that's a really uh, important group, and then the other group you might call you know provincials or localists or whatever you want to call them, and I really live around that group of people. I mean, even the city I live near in Montana, Bozeman, is kind of uh, the most fancy city probably in Montana, but you know that's Montana, right? It's um, it's still a very and I don't say this critically, I mean, I, I'm here for that reason. It's, it's a very provincial located place where people's horizons tend, I mean, not exclusively, of course, there's all, all types of people here, but they tend to be, you know, very focused on Montana or even the, the small town in Montana where they live in and not kind of communing with uh, Davos or, or even, you know, Tokyo or something like that. Um, and so, uh, you know, my kind of day-to-day -day existence here is much more around those sorts of people. So I, I'm very aware of that contrast. Um, to me, I think one of the, the, the main ways to, to kind of get around this, and this is something I've, I've talked about a fair bit and write a lot about, is, is the immigration question, which is if you just have this total permeable border of your country and you have elites with the attitudes you have, you know, just national identity just completely ultimately disappears. Um, and I think you're seeing this. I think so much of the fractiousness that we see um, is because of the explosion of demographic diversity in this country. Um, uh, you know, people don't get along with each other. They don't come from the same cultures. They don't have the same uh, values or goals or systems. And it's not even a question of one being right or one being wrong. It's the inherent, I mean, I would just challenge inherently the notion that diversity is a good. Uh, to me, unity more or less is a good. I mean, obviously, you can have too much unity and then you sort of head in the direction of fascism or some other type of control. Um, but but in general, uh, the sort of wonderfully uh, diverse panoply that we're always uh, propagandized about here in the United States has a lot of real downsides and fractiousness. And if you look historically, these sorts of hyper multicultural 
states or empires, if you want to look uh, historically, uh, have tended not to turn out uh, so well. And there's just tons of examples of that. I mean, I, I do... Obviously, I don't think diversity is our strength in the same sort of platitudinal way that it's repeated. Uh, but I do see a strength in the ability to assimilate the best of other cultures. I mean, I think the Roman Empire had that. Um, eventually, the provinces became more powerful than than. Yeah. But like that was a long time scale. I mean, all human things die, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's probably the most successful empire in history. So uh, that's you know. I don't. I wouldn't call that a failure on its part, but it, it, it's true that we had a balance in America between the the pluribus and the unum, right? Um, we, sure. we have always had a certain amount of pluribus more than other nations, even from the founding. Um, but that has been balanced, or at least was balanced in the past, by almost a civic religion um, sure. surrounding the American founding, surrounding the principles, um, and and that that wasn't sort of a, a a bloodless idea. It was also a tradition of self government, in which in, in, into which you know on a local level people were assimilated. Um, you have this piece; it's really interesting. It's an American mind, right? Your settlers piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you have this this interesting piece in the American mind where you make a distinction between the so-called nation of immigrants um, and the nation of settlers. Uh, can you maybe lay out your argument in that piece, and then we'll we'll go from there? Sure. Well, it's it's sort of a historical look at the term nation of immigrants and where it came from, and understanding that it's in fact not really a description of the U.S. It's it's a platitude. It's something that literally came out of uh, John F. Kennedy wanting to be president in the early 1960s. And, you know, for those of uh, the listeners who are going, well, wait a second, you know, we've always had immigration. And of course, we always have. What I distinguish is if you look at um, the early history of America, especially when you go back to the earliest founding days uh, as a colonial society, we had more settlers. They weren't people coming into an existing society. They were people to going and creating de novo, a new society. Now, that isn't, of course, to erase Native Americans who are obviously here, although not necessarily permanently settled in that many locations. But uh, there was obviously a lot of fractiousness between those two communities, uh, as well as some cooperation at times and even intermarriage sort of famously. But um, it is to say, like, the early folks who came here were really settling and creating a new society, not simply joining an existing society, and that in fact, when you look back at the history of the United States, this makes up a tremendous amount of our history. And so when we read to Tocqueville, for example, who's writing in the 1830s, and at a time, we are actually closer to de Tocqueville in time than de Tocqueville was to the uh, you know 1620 Pilgrims or Jamestown or what have you. I mean, uh, you know, we're 190 years or so from de Tocqueville, and he's writing after 200 plus years of European settlement. De Tocqueville doesn't mention um, immigration or immigrants at all in democracy in America, not even once. And it's not, of course, because there weren't any immigrants there or that there was no immigration, but that, in fact, de Tocqueville writing before uh, the first big wave of kind of non-British immigration happened uh, in America. And this was sort of the Central European German immigration that that happened in the wake of the failed revolutions of 1848, and then the Irish immigration in the wake of the Irish potato famine. Um, but but writing at that time, it just it wasn't as salient. And, and Tocqueville himself actually makes this distinction between he kind of talks about people seeing themselves and commentators on Tocqueville have written about how people sort of saw themselves as settlers. 
Now, obviously, at various points then, sort of starting in the mid-19th century in particular, you begin to get more and more people arriving largely from Europe, although not exclusively. We had, we had Chinese immigrants here as early as the, the 1840s. Um, but you, you begin to get people arriving into more settled societies. And so then uh, throughout the mid to late 19th century, you get this mix of settlement and immigration. And then in 1890, the U.S. Census Bureau kind of famously declares the era, the frontier is closed, essentially that, that America is settled. And at that point, uh, a couple years later, uh, Frederick Jackson Turner, who was probably the greatest uh, of the late 19th century American historians, gives this very famous speech at the Columbian Exposition in Chicago entitled The Significance of the Frontier in American History. And he talks a little bit about kind of the incredible importance of the frontier and settlement in terms of creating this very unique American identity uh, and that the, the kind of transformation we were go undertaking now as we kind of that first great era closed. And then from 1890s on, you began to get um, 1890s through 1920s, a very, very heavy immigration into a settled society. But then in reaction to that, because a lot of people freaked out and didn't like it, uh, you got what was probably the lowest immigration period we've had in American history from the early 1920s to uh, the mid-1960s, where you had uh, very, very low levels of immigration and largely from places that uh, had represented the the country backgrounds of people who'd been living here in the first place. Uh, and then that is the environment in which Kennedy, toward the tail end of that, writes this book, A Nation of Immigrants. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that at least among uh, white Americans, and obviously the white-black relations were still very fraught during this time, you almost had a kind of mythical uh, sense of unity during this 1920s to 1960s period, kind of punctuated by these these sorts of World War II films you can almost see, where you know we became the melting pot and ever the, the the races of Europe, as Israel's Van Gogh said, you know, come to America and melt and, and reform into something new. Um, and so, but it was only when Kennedy begins to make this argument on the tail end of other people's arguments, and then in 1965 we get the heart seller immigration uh, bill in the wake of Kennedy's assassination, then we kind of really move toward this, this sort of system that we are in now. But but the, this is, again, it's kind of a long answer, but it's a long story. It's just a way of saying, you know, we are not always been a nation of immigrants. We've been a nation with immigrants, and immigrants have certainly been an important part of the story, balancing that pluribus and the unum in the way that you just talked about. But when we just tell ourselves that story of being a nation of immigrants, we're essentially just kind of buying into left-wing propaganda about what America is, and it doesn't really tell the full story of our history. So let's return to the the, the key point here in, in the story you just told, which is the closing of the frontier and what we, we might call the Ellis Island era, right? Um, when, when people really start to think of America as a nation of immigrants, even if they didn't use that that phrase, because you have this extraordinary high volume um, from places that are more culturally distinct, still within mostly European um, countries, but but are like very distinct from the the native population. Right, first you have influx of Catholics, later of Eastern Europeans and Jews. Um, you know, like very culturally distinct from the immigration that had come before. Um, 
although, as you say, there, there have always been, I mean, there have always been Jews in America. There have always been Muslims in America. There, ha- there have always been um, different strains of Protestantism and, and folks from with German and Scandinavian background. And, and anyway, like, but, but the pro- it's, it's true that the predominant immigration came, you know, until that point came from largely Protestant countries that were in the Anglosphere and, and then a little bit of German. Yeah. Um, 85% British at the time of the revolution and then the rest sort of German and Dutch and then 1% everything else. Yeah, so we have we have these simultaneous incidents, the closing of the frontier and, and the end of settlement, as you would call it, um, and then this, this new influx of immigration. And people always point to this as like, okay, well, we, we, can, we can replicate this period. And I, I think uh, it's true that we could possibly replicate – and I tend to think we could assimilate uh, plenty of immigrants if certain other cultural conditions were met that I don't think are. Uh, but this was not, a, as, as you kind of alluded to, this, this was not a, a uh, uh, untumultuous sort of internal period for the United States. There were a lot of clashes, um, especially over schooling, which I think are um, are being replicated now. Uh, and it, it did actually fracture a kind of pan-Protestant consensus in America where we really didn't have to work out some of the tension between America's early um, fervent Christianity and, and indeed state-level establishments in many cases um, of various strains of Protestant Christianity and this this uh, somewhat like secular federal government. America really didn't have to work out a lot of those um, naughty problems in practice largely because essentially – we, we had this sort of soft Protestant establishment. Um, they read the King James Bible, right, in, in school. Um, and, and that wave of immigration of Catholics in particular comes along and actually does fracture that uh, and, and causes, like, a lot of consternation and you have a lot of anti-Catholic backlash and so on. Um, you know, do you think that post-1965, that describes the period that we're in where we have high levels of immigration and then domestic fracturing over what things that were previously sort of consensus items about American society, but that perhaps are not written into our constitution or not um, uh, sort of explicitly protected in, in law, but have nevertheless underpinned a lot of our institutions? Or do you think that we're in a similar period, I guess is what I'm asking you? I, I think so. And I think, you know, you kind of touched on this uh, just a little bit, I think a really important kind of adjunct, which is you talked about, well, I'm not sure that we have those conditions anymore. You know, when we had the, the late 19th century, early 20th century, and you had this massive immigration from these very different places, we did a few things. One is we actually called halt for a 40 year period to allow effectively what happened is those groups to all assimilate with the people who'd already been there into some sort of a common identity. And by the way, of course, that wasn't just a one way, um, you know, street, uh, uh, you can read, I remember reading Lee Iacocca, who uh, kind of a guy of my childhood, a great kind of auto executive from Chrysler, who is Italian-American and kind of talking about when he was a kid and he would have a pizza party and all of the sort of native, uh, you know, like old stock American kids would make fun of him because they're like, well, pizza, what's that? You know, whereas now, you know, when we think of American food, you know, pizza would be right up there with hamburgers, which of course... Uh, presumably originally from Hamburg, Germany. So the point is not that um, these are just kind of one-way sort of assimilation, but at least when you had that pause in immigration, you allowed that identity to cohere. Secondly, you didn't have a big welfare state. 
So that removed a set of incentives and huge percentage of people actually went back because they couldn't make it. Third, you didn't have a race-based spoil system, um, which we have now. In fact, I mean, if anything, uh, you had the kind of reverse. Immigrants were were often uh, discriminated against for, for very obvious reasons, whereas now legally in lots of ways, depending on what they look like, immigrants are uh, discriminated um, uh, for. And I think finally, the other challenge I'd kind of say that I think we have now that we didn't have then, and again, it's not insurmountable, is, you know, I myself, I'm not uh, descended from old stock Americans in any way. I'm part of that mid 19th century, uh, you know, post de Tocquevillian um, uh, immigration from Central Europe, mostly uh, my family. Um, my wife is largely uh, from an old stock uh, American background. But if you look at our kids, you know, they're kind of indistinguishable from uh, George Washington, right? I mean, not that they literally look like George Washington, but you can't tell a physical difference. And then I think they're just the reality, the, you know, it's an unfortunate reality, but uh, uh, of, of where we are is that when you have a multiracial society as we have now, that's not going to be evident, at least for a few generations of a lot of intermarriage. And, you know, maybe it'll happen to varying degrees. You see a lot of Hispanic and non-Hispanic white uh, marriages right now. And, you know, but but I think those those physical differences that are always the cause of strife in many different countries, uh, you know, Razib Khan, a kind of popular writer on genetics on our side of the aisle, he just had a piece out this week that's kind of like, other than sex, you know, skin color is the first thing you kind of tend to notice um, about somebody when you, when you might meet them. Uh, it's kind of the most obvious physical manifestation. And so I think that those problems are just thornier for us. And it doesn't mean that we can't solve them. And it doesn't mean that, God forbid, we want some sort of racial caste system um, in the U.S., but it means that we need to be very realistic about what we are doing, the sort of societal structures and incentives that we're setting up, and think about whether this is really getting us to an unum that we're happy about or whether, in fact, what we're just going to have is a bunch of fracturing along lines uh, that are really going to cause a lot of long-term uh, conflict. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, I agree with you insofar as I frequently find myself frustrated by the lack of appreciation of the difficulty of the project, right? I, I think, as I said about the Roman Empire, you know, um, I think the project is worthwhile. I think it does have enormous advantages that are then offset with certain weaknesses. Um, and, and those weaknesses were mitigated, not entirely taken away or, or, or negated, but um, were mitigated by a very, very strong assimilatory culture and almost a civic religion in America. Um, but I, I, there's only kind of one counter model within America that perplexes me because that was that was sort of how I thought about it. Oh, you know, we need this very, very strong assimilatory model. We need the civic religion. We need, um, and and that is that is New York City. Uh, partially, I think, because people are really from so many different um, parts of the world, but it is kind of balkanized, right? You have neighborhoods, ethnic neighborhoods that sort of rise and fall in New York City, um, and, and there is quite a bit of, of social strife, and, and there are conflicts between these sort of ethnic enclaves. But on the whole, New York City seems to function and continue to function over time, no thanks to the government. I'm, I'm talking here on, like, the, the scale of centuries, right? Um, yeah. And and it is kind of a counter to 
the way that I have been thinking about, um, perhaps you might call it actually genuinely what the left used to to be in favor of, which is more of a salad bowl than a melting pot, right? It, it is mm-hmm. genuinely this very strong series of ethnic identities, um, none of which is totally dominant. Sure. Because there are so many of them. Well, and that may be an advantage, right, that New York has just because there is such a multiplicity. On the other hand, I mean, and this just reflects a... Um, you know, the difference of people. I mean, you, you choose to live in New York, so I presumably you really like living there, right? And I choose to live in Montana uh, because I kind of like living here. Um, if Montana uh, was New York, I don't think I'd really be happy. And if New York were Montana, um, I don't think you'd be happy. Um, you know, I think having that sort of multiplicity, even on a local level, um, is appealing. And I kind of remember as, you know, a kid from North Carolina, I would go and visit, I had an aunt and uncle who lived in San Francisco and I would go to Chinatown and it was just like the most amazing thing to me because it was like, here I was in America, but there were all these, it was just like all Chinese people. And this was like a mind blowing thing. I mean, I thought it was really neat and cool. You know, I was like, wow, I can't, I can't believe this. And I think, um, you know, when you have that in New York and San Francisco and a few places, like that can work really well when everywhere is just kind of a panoply of people from everywhere with, you know, and they may all be in their ethnic communities and there's no kind of common culture and identity. I think that works a lot less well. That may be true. I, I, um, the, the other aspect of this is that there was an identity offered here. Here I'm thinking about, um, Teddy Roosevelt's famous, no hyphenated American speech, um, where he, he, both has a carrot and stick, right? There was this carrot and stick approach to new immigrants, um, especially as you you finish out the 19th century, you start the 20th century, which is, you know, the stick part was, you know, as you say, there was no welfare state uh, to speak of and immigrants didn't qualify even for those benefits that were there. Um, there, there were strict standards. Uh, you had to learn English. People wouldn't communicate with you. There were no official documents in 20 different languages, right? Um, so there was there was this very strong demand that people learn English, they assimilate to American customs, uh, that they, they participate politically in a way that is comprehensible to the political system. Um, but but on the other hand, there, there was this this offer of American identity. And that that is quite unique in the history of the world. This, um, and maybe the Roman Empire, I think, is the only Real antecedent, even though they really didn't start out that way, but then they started like yeah, they sort of um, became that way over time. They became that way over time, but there's this real offer of American identity, right? That you can become an American, and uh, th- that is not on offer in most European countries, for example. Yeah. I mean, uh, certainly not in France or in Germany, even countries that are quote unquote more liberal um, than the United States or more left wing than the United States. That that identity is not truly. Offered. It's not on offer. You, you know, tolerance is what's on offer, not yeah. acceptance into a larger identity. No, I, I think that's exactly I, right. And it is a strength that we used to have. And, and we, we have, I mean, we don't have any choice. I'm not suggesting, I mean, we're not going to undo where we are. So we've got to, um, you know, make the, the new citizen, wherever they're from, feel like they're as American as like the first American who landed on Plymouth Rock and that they're just as invested in the American project. I mean, I firmly believe that we can't go around kind of having again, like different classes of, of citizenship or Americanness or, or a sense of that you're not, you're, 
you're no longer able to access this identity that you've talked about because you're not from the right place or your skin doesn't uh, come in the right shade that we've decided or, or what have you. I mean, I firmly believe we have to do that. Um, the question is, given the, the scale of immigration and the types of immigrants we're bringing in, you know, many of whom are ill-matched for our particular economic needs or whatever have you, are we setting ourselves up in the current regime to be best able to do that? And I would argue we absolutely aren't. And the only way that I think we can get around that is you have to have a pretty hard pause on certainly mass immigration. And you're still, you still always, um, as America, I think we always want to get the best and the brightest from, from everywhere. I mean, I think that is a great um, asset that we have as a country. I mean, you certainly have seen this as I did uh, living in Palo Alto, you know, that certainly that, that, that area uh, runs to a great degree off bringing in really bright people from elsewhere. Um, but to just think that we can import, you know, as, as I suppose we've done under Biden, 5 million illegal immigrants in 18 months from anywhere with no particular match to what the skills we need are in America, and that this is not going to have profoundly negative long-term effects on our social cohesion, on our economy, on everything else. I just think it's it's very naive and, and kind of out of date with with kind of 2022 reality of where we are now. It's it's funny. Um, I, I have like the, the opposite instinct, perhaps out of that same Palo Alto observation. I have this opposite instinct, actually, about our, for example, our H-1B programs and stuff. Um, although, you know, yes, I, I like that we import Nobel Prize winners from around the world. Right. Uh, that's obviously been a benefit to America. But oftentimes people who are coming here, who have a lot of options, are coming from the top of their own societies at home. They have no desire to assimilate. I mean, the number of Chinese engineers in Silicon Valley who will tell you straight up, like the Chinese system is far superior. Um, I'm like, but then why are you here? They're well, because right. I can get this job for, you know, a quarter million dollars right. a year. Um, I'm actually more worried about that kind of immigration in some sense than I am about low skill immigration. Um, but it's, it's interesting. The, the identity question it, it also is sort of personal to me because it seems like I'm actually worried that, we will offer nothing in exchange. There is this natural impulse to to create these kinds of enclaves, just to be around people who speak the same language as you, who understand your cultural customs, who you know to intermarry within those groups. And um, there was this very strong kind of offer from America that said, you know, no, you can be part of this other identity. Yeah. You have to give up this old thing, and it costs you something, right? It costs yeah. something, but there's something on offer, and. I guess I, I don't worry that America isn't assimilating immigrants anymore. I wonder what we're assimilating them to, um, because it seems to me that what's on offer now in place of this civic religion and strong American identity is a series of, pro of propositions about, you know, oppressed groups and, and as you say, a racial spoil system. Uh, there's enormous incentive. I mean, we are, are subsidizing, encouraging, and indeed demanding ba balkanization um, yeah. And we're we're telling new immigrants not what Teddy Roosevelt told them at the turn of the century that you know we have you've been granted this great gift of, of entrance into this project, um, but we're telling them the opposite. We're telling them, in fact, that America is an evil country uh, that you have every right to bring every grievance you possibly can, and in fact, um, you know every 
as, as immigrants, you know, naturally look to their neighbors, their schools, the institutions, the newspapers that are being printed to learn about their new country. And all of those institutions are saying, actually, this is a bad place you've come to. And in fact, you're right and we're wrong. Um, I, I don't know how we can continue to to not. It seems like we are assimilating. We're assimilating people into a balkanization that's created here at home. Well, I would agree with both of your statements. I mean, first, regarding skilled immigration, I would definitely have a tighter cap than what we do have. I think, I mean, I've looked a lot at the H-1B uh, immigration in, in particular. And, and uh, you know, I think, again, at the, at the level that we're, we're importing folks and not just the best and the brightest, but a lot of, you know, B-level guys who just end up displacing American software engineers. I don't think that serves our interests. And I do worry about some of the balkanization. Um, and then you, I think you touch on the bigger issue is what are we assimilating these people to? And we've just had a total lack of, of uh, collapse of cultural confidence in this country. But to some degree, I think that you have to look at, well, why did this happen? This didn't just, you know, spring fully armored like Athena out of Zeus's head. I mean, there, there had to be an origin story. And at least to me, a plausible significant element of this is, is that we have kind of weakened our majority culture significantly and made it marginal enough demographically that a lot of these people are coming in and saying, hey, you know, these founders, they're not telling a story that's about me. You know, I'm not, my family is not the hero of the story. My, my family doesn't get to belong in this story. And so then you get people tearing down statues, right? Because they're like, well, you know, we kind of, we don't believe in the founding myths of these bad, bad guys. So we're going to kind of create our own American story that stars us, which by the way, does not make them bad people. It makes them humans. I mean, that's a natural human tendency to want to do that. But I think it's in many the ways. Italians certainly put up the, all the statues of Columbus that are now yeah. being torn yeah. down. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's just, you know, it's been caused by the, the pace of demographic change that we've, we've had in this country. And again, I think if we have a pause where we can kind of pause and reform whatever this new American identity is going to be, I think, uh, you know, that will really be the one thing that's going to kind of save the American project at this point. Um, you know, it's just, it's hard for me to see us getting rid of this racial spoils system or, you know, any of the other kind of woke nonsense that we have kind of running around. And I think absent that it's, it's really hard to imagine cohering, uh, this unified American identity around a set of, uh, you know, propositions or ideas that we're all supposed to uh, believe in. You know, I think it's very hard because America has traditionally, it's been a set of propositions, but it's not just a set of propositions. Uh, we've been a people and we have chosen to, uh, you know, transform pretty radically uh, who the American people are from a demographic perspective. And I think that's going to have a lot of uh, unintended and not so pleasant consequences. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because it's difficult to suss out, I think, um, where the origin of this is, because I, I have a totally competing narrative. Um, but I, I can't really quite, you know, I, I can't say that what you're saying is is not the correct one, because there's this confluence, really interesting confluence right around 1965 of a whole bunch of traditions, both domestic and immigration, right? Like there, there's in the same decade, you have a sexual revolution, a, a cultural revolution, um, and largely spurred through academia, right? You have racial, domestic racial conflict that is endemic to the United States, i.e. between right. white and black Americans. Um, 
and and then you have these floodgates opening uh, to large groups, large waves of immigration from places that had not uh, come come to America in, lar- in such large numbers before. And so it's it's very difficult to because I tend to see a lot of this as coming actually from you know from academia from um, to the extent that that it really comes from anything related to the racial conflict I think it's you know an outgrowth of, of a much I mean a sort of original sin problem in America right uh, to some extent that there has always been conflict between black and white Americans and then that conflict has been that the pattern for that conflict from the 1960s has been sort of attached to successive groups of immigrants. I think Mike Gonzalez, who I've had on here, um, has written the history of that pretty convincingly, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I can't really say that this is not the case. I know we've had these discussions even specifically about California, where I see very much um, the the sort of progenitor of California's decline as, as not coming from immigration, but coming from the academy, um, and the acceptance of essentially mostly white elites uh, that actually run a large part of the state, even if they don't hold the voting majority. Sure. Um, it's amazing and, to what degree they still do run the state, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and it'll be interesting to see what the tra- transformation looks like. Yeah, in no way am I suggesting a monocausal model here or that academia is not a part of it, although then I think you have to kind of go ask the prior question of, well, why did academia become the way it is? Uh, to some degree, you know, you, you touch on 65. So the baby boomers, the first ones are born in 46. They're coming to college in 1964. You know, right around then you begin to get changes. So is it, you know, is there a story partially about mass affluence in this post-war generation? I mean, I'm very open to a lot of different factors uh, contributing here, but I think that certainly a necessary, if not sufficient one, was the dramatic unprecedented and frankly also unvoted upon uh, demographic transformation that we we had in this country around that time. But it's interesting also, to, again, to look at California, if you look at California as kind of demographically in other ways, a kind of progenitor of where or sort of a signpost for where we're heading, it's very disturbing in that it's a place with unprecedented kind of affluence at the very top. And it also, using the Census Bureau aggress- adjusted um, numbers has the highest poverty rate in America. I mean, worse than Mississippi, right? And so is that the type of Brazilification of a society, Californification uh, that we're heading to in America? I, I worry that it is uh, the hollowing out of the middle class. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's again, it's, it's not a model, I think, that we want to replicate nationwide. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more on that one. I mean, what, where do you go with because as you say, this this is – I think there's probably multiple causes to this. It does seem – it is funny how many different issues, when I start to look into them, there's some huge break in the mid-1960s. I mean, issue after – whether it's immigration or men who don't work, which was um, – I had uh, Dr. Ebersat on to talk about trends of essentially the NEETs, right, the, the men who are prime yeah. age and dropping out of the workforce. There's a huge break in the mid-60s, right, whether you're talking about right. the sexual revolution, the number of sexual partners, the rates out of wedlock. Like there's this this huge break in the 1960s um, that – that I, I can't, I can't tell you that it's not what you're you're saying. It might, might very well be that that yeah. a large part of that break has um, was the previous large influx of immigrants from all over the world. I just don't know. It's hard to suss out where all of these effects began. Um, but 
you know, you're, you're a practical guy, as you've noted multiple times, right? Uh, we are where we are uh, demographically. Right. Um, there does seem to be some hope that demography is not political destiny these days in a way that uh, perhaps seemed fanciful even as as late as 2012 or 2015. You know, right. so... Well- um, what what do you think about like sort of the shifting basis of of politics, um, considering the fact that we have Hispanics in larger and larger numbers voting yeah. for the right? Well, and, and it's interesting. There's a there's a an author um, in the UK uh, whose last name is Kaufman at the University of Birkbeck mm-hmm. who wrote a book called White Shift that you might be familiar with. He was he's been on this podcast. To talk okay, about so great. It, yeah. So you know him, and I, I think he's really good. I think he's really interesting. I think he's he's thought about these issues in a very thoughtful way. Um, and I think, you know, we are sort of maybe headed uh, in a more positive direction if to kind of use the term that people made fun of in a while, a while back. But multiracial whiteness, you know, that kind of may be the, the kind of happy story that we sort of end up telling where, you know, like we all kind of end up looking tannish in some form or fashion, but we still identify with George Washington, right? Like that could happen. And I think that's probably realistically uh, the best outcome that I think is is really plausible uh, that we're going to have now. Um, certainly, if you look at a big group like Hispanics, uh, they have, in many ways, very strong claims to Americanness and part of our parts of our history. I mean, the first European settlement, after all, uh, in the America was not, in fact, Plymouth Rock, but in St. Augustine, Florida, uh, a Spanish settlement, right? Um, and um, so, I mean, I think that that we can in- integrate more groups into the American story. I do think at some level, it may be that the Democrats, you know, relentless racial demagoguery is kind of running up against diminishing returns in a pretty dramatic way. And that you're seeing, for example, in South Texas, a lot of Hispanics kind of looking both at their economic situation at the border, which, of course, affects them more than anybody else. I mean, you know, they're taking... Uh, you know, a thousand Martha's Vineyards in Eagle Pass, Texas each year um, that they uh, are looking at values from everything from abortion to, you know, what have you. And they're like, huh, you know, maybe I'm not going to to go with uh, with the guys who are relentlessly pitting ourselves against each other. Um, that's a more hopeful story I can tell. I don't think it's crazy. I don't think that we're going to wind up with um, over the long term. Um, you know, kind of one party for white people and one party for everything else, much as the Democrats might really desire that to be the case. Um, but there's a lot of landmines on the way to get there. And uh, there's a lot of ways for us to step on them. And uh, that, that's just a continual worry that I, I have, certainly. Um, well, for the, for the last uh, part of this discussion here, I, I didn't want to... Um let you go without asking you, you wrote this, this kind of uh, tour de force of a piece um, on transgenderism, on the way that we are failing uh, to, to impart even the most basic imprint of reality of male and female to children. And that that's like, that's, that's a, sh- that's a shame on the adults of the country. I think that's how I would summarize yeah. what you wrote. You know, you have um, six kids in part, you, you uh, move them, away from Palo Alto because of some of the the things that we've been talking about. Um, you know, I guess, where do you see this issue going? Um, and and who really, I mean, we are seeing some kind of shift on it. 
um, where yeah. we do have more of a middle sort of people who are not as as uh, kooky right wingers as you and I um, who are starting to pick up on what this does to children. I mean, so right. how would you lay that out? Well, I think it's interesting because at one level, it actually ties into everything we've been talking about before. And that it's sort of the tip of the spear. And and the, the left's position on transgenderism is so crazy. And it's so self-evidently crazy and destructive, particularly when you're talking about children. Um, you know, the kind of notion that, you know, with almost 2% of Gen Z kids or something identifying as trans, that, you know, they were just being repressed and that they didn't have this identity, you know, they, they really had this identity, but it was just, you know, people were telling them it was bad rather than we've got a social contagion and, and we shouldn't be like castrating 14 year olds or giving double mastectomies to 15 year olds. Um, you know, it's such a crazy position that the Democrats have on this. Um, and yet they're doubling down on it. And it's because at some level, I feel like transgenderism is kind of the tip of the spear. It's sort of, they know that if they get crushed on any element of this identity politics, then, you know, transgenderism is just one more group in the Democrats' identity coalition that they want to have against the evil, you know, straight white male, you know, slash uh, married female GOP. Um, you know, they, they realize if they lose here, if they have to concede here, there may be a bunch of other things that fall off as well. And so they're kind of put in this ridiculous position of kind of defending this position that even with the entire might of the media and everything else and all the institutions they control in Hollywood, they're just not going to be able to convince the majority of Americans, I think, on this issue. Um, I mean, people get it. As a parent, you get it with your kids. I mean, even here in Montana, we have some trans kids in schools. You know, I, I don't think it's being uh, encouraged or, you know, abetted in the way that uh, it is in a lot of other locations. But, you know, it's it's this, this social contagion is taken over from the Internet. And when it's your kid and when you're talking about sterilizing your kid or, you know, mutilating them and kind of the lifetime that uh, is going to um, uh, ensue because of that, I mean, it's a very personal issue to me as a parent. I mean, I and I've, I've said this and I've written this, you know, a lot of issues. I love to have the issue. Um, I love to just beat up on the Democrats because we can win on it politically. Not that I don't really believe in it and not that I don't um, really want to win it for the substantive reason, but the politics of it is also, you know, attractive. This is such a, a spiritual violation. If I could get like zero political points, even if I took like a slight political hit, but I could just make this contagion go away, particularly when we're involving our kids, I would do it. You know, because I see as a parent the risk that that I'm, you know, even like I'm watching my kids, you know, fortunately, they're they all seem to be in good, good position as regards to this. But but, uh, you know, this happens. This happens. I know parents this has happened to, you know, who are normal parents. So I think that's such a personal thing. Um, so, I mean, that's really the, what I can say about it. Do you think we can make a distinction? Because this is somewhere where, like, the, I think the political um, benefits of this issue probably split from some of the things that I, I think are true and need to be said um, in, in, in two ways. One, obviously, as you just laid out, I mean, the, the rage around this with regards to children is very clear 
to a wide swath of political backgrounds, right? You have people, not just from the center, but even from the left, who are, you know, terrified about the effects on their children. And I, I think you're yeah. right to say we can definitely do something about this, um, you know, provided we are uh, we have spines enough to do it. We can absolutely do something about this this issue specifically with regards to children. I I that that coalition that's coming together um, has as as you said about sort of the the demographic shift has some landmines I think in it. Um, one of which is something that I talk about, which is the extent the transgenderism, um, and I expand on this argument so many times elsewhere that I won't go into it now, but I think transgenderism is a very um, sort of cognizable consequence of the underlying principles of feminism. Um, that, that you know, differences between men and women are largely social constructs, right? Um, and, and the disconnection of masculinity or femininity from biological sex, I think this is actually a logical conclusion. But there's also this, there's not this... Um, firewall between adults and children that I, I sometimes hear folks even on our side talking about. Like, well, if you're an adult, you do whatever you want, have all the surgeries you want, um, you know, we'll affirm you, but don't touch the kids. And right. certainly a, a colorable position, and I think it's probably the most popular political position. But I'm not sure that this, do you think we can kind of build a firewall in this way or... Well, I think this is a really important point. And I was actually on a, a, a talk show here in, in Montana just talking about this today where the host, who's a super conservative guy and very solid on everything, was kind of taking the, yeah, okay, you adults, you do you, but don't touch the kids. I, I think that the kids stuff is so egregious that probably politically it's a defensible firewall, but I wouldn't want to go there. I do think it's important to say that um, – you know, transgenderism at some fundamental level for the overwhelming majority of people, if not everybody, is just kind of a, a fundamental spiritual violation. And as you point, I mean, kind of, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lead politically with, well, this is an outgrowth of feminism, even though I think you know, this is a totally defensible point. And, and somebody, I mean, I'm very interested in gender and these issues. And I'm sure you and I would be actually in tight agreement on on that. But, you know, right now we're putting out the fire so we can kind of figure out who started the fire uh, a little bit later as, as kind of a point B. Um, but I do think that it's, you know, we would make a mistake to just restrict it to kids. I think you start with kids and then with adults, you know, I think the um, you know, what you do legally, that, that gets into a grayer area. Like whether you're going to say, like, you can't do certain things surgically as an adult. I think that becomes a harder position to have. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have it. It just means that's a more tenuous. Um, but I do think that we should say it's wrong <laughs> um, and that it's damaging. Um, and I don't think that we should shy away from that. I don't think we should just say, oh, we'll let you do you. Um, it's fine once you're 18 years and one day old. Um, uh, by the way, you know, just as a small point to me, um, you know, the age of uh, buying cigarettes should be the age we're talking about for this. Uh, you know, even if we're going to allow it at all, age 21, you know, not even 18, just to get some of the craziness out of the system. So I do think that it's important um, to kind of make the broader moral argument and not just think that we can totally firewall off the kids. Um, but, uh, you know, whether we kind of take it back to its full origins. I don't know that I'd want to say the F word because I think that will just get potential allies on the left. It will kind of get their hackles up. 
But I do think you can say things like, hey, you know, we're sort of erasing distinctions between men and women. And maybe that's not a good thing. And then, you know, whether you call this something that's an outgrowth of feminism is is maybe a little less uh, important. And then I think you also just have to be able to say that you know, there are feminine boys and masculine girls and everything in between, but that doesn't change their fundamental sex, right? And you know, it's funny that like the left kind of has this totally reductionistic, almost like 1950s way of like, if you're not this like super feminine girl, well, maybe you're trans. If you're not this super masculine guy, well, maybe you're trans. Uh, whereas it's now the right kind of saying, oh, you know, actually, you know, there's a continuum here of of um, the way that people express their masculinity and femininity, and that's okay. Yeah, I definitely would have been trans as a kid, 100%. <laughs> like, um, I wanted to be John Wayne when I was six. Um, well, Jeremy Carl, thank you so much for, for coming on High Noon. Where can people find your work. Um, you're at the Claremont Institute. You write for American Greatness. What's your Twitter handle for sure. for the people? I'm, I'm at Jeremy Carl, for just the number four. It's not the world's most inventive Twitter handle, but I haven't bothered to change it. Uh, so that's, and I tweet at my stuff pretty regularly there. You can find me at American Mind, American Greatness, Newsweek, The American Conservative. Uh, if you go to my website, jeremycarl.com, it doesn't have a ton of stuff there, but I do link to my um uh, kind of work there so you can see a lot of my writings there um, and uh, you know uh, at some point I may I've threatened to do a sub stack and I may actually uh, even do that and inflict that upon uh, the greater reading populace but that's uh, still a work in progress uh, well thank you very much for coming on high noon uh, it's a pleasure to be on thanks so much Inez and I don't have the script that I normally read at the end of these episodes because, as you can see, if you're watching on on uh, the video, there's there's the dog that killed uh, killed terrorists behind me. Um, I'm recording out of the Federalist uh, studio today, but um, generally speaking, this is an independent women's uh, production of the Independent Women's Forum. And uh, if you like this podcast, you should check out some of our other podcast offerings. Um, one is called She Thinks with Beverly Hallberg and does more of a day to day politics and um, politics download. And then there's something called At the Bar, where, which I, with, along with my colleague Jennifer Berseris, we talk about issues at the intersection of law, um, politics, and culture. And, and we, we try to do them with a little sort of happy hour flair on that, on that spin. But um, it's always helpful if you like this podcast. Um, please do, you know, please do share it. Please rate or review it um, and all those, those evil tech platforms that you are using to, to stream this crime think. Um, so until then, uh, next time, be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.